Welcome, everyone, to Seek, Go, Create. This is your host, Tim Winders. Today, great conversation. We're going to be discussing NFTs and how it can impact creators and other people in the world, like authors, which I have just completed a book. And so I want to remind you real quickly, if you haven't checked it out, go over to timwinders.com forward slash book and grab my novel, Coach, A Story of Success Redefined. Been getting great feedback, great reviews, excited to get it out in the world. A little bit different. It's a novel story to it, but we're getting some excellent, excellent uh, uh, stories about how it's impacting people, and that was the goal. So go check that out, and uh, today we're going to discuss some things related to authors and all of that. I have Jesse Krieger. He's the co-founder and chief content officer of PowerFan.io, where their mission is to empower authors, creators, and fans to connect and conduct commerce in valuable new ways. Great, great bio there. Jesse, welcome to Seat Go Create. Thanks so much, Tim. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. Okay, I gave you a little blur bio, but if I ask you what you do, what do you typically tell people? Well, I say two things. I'm the founder and publisher of Lifestyle Entrepreneurs Press, and we're a book publishing company for the last eight years. And I'm co-founder of PowerFan.io, which as you mentioned, we're in the blockchain space, working with NFTs, with content creators, and all that exciting stuff. Cool. <laughs> and and so you spread a wide net there. You talked about you know press and doing books, and then all of a sudden you dove into blockchain, and you know we're going to talk NFTs, and and so I want to dive right in and get to the question that probably is on a lot of people's minds. And that is, what's up with all this NFT stuff? Yeah, I mean, NFTs are a fast emerging type of asset. And, you know, if you've been tuned into this space over the last year and a half, then you've probably seen this massive um, kind of unprecedented almost um, amount of activity going on. Like, I think between 2020 to 2021, um, NFT sales grew into the tens of billions of dollars in value. And whether or not that sounds impressive, you know, in the book publishing industry where I've got my other foot, you know, the entire book publishing industry is like $14, 15000000000 billion a year industry for every book sold in America. So in, in a couple short years, this new type of asset has uh, captured or surpassed the market value of the entire publishing industry. Of course, NFTs go far beyond um, books and publishing. That's one of the ways that I'm involved with them. But NFTs are really interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, you know, from a, if I put my publisher's hat on, thinking royalties, NFTs have built into them um, a royalty mechanism for the creator. So that means that now creators can capture royalties on secondary sales the third time it's sold, the fourth time it's sold, the fifth time it's sold, instantly and automatically. Whereas, like, if we publish a book and sell a book, we've got to wait weeks or months to collect that revenue, create author royalty statements, do a bunch of calculations, and then send that out. But with an NFT, it, it allows creators to um, have a new revenue stream based on people selling, reselling those assets. Uh, the other reason it's exciting is it allows for almost any type of content to be delivered. 
That could be something as simple as just an image, like many people have seen these apes, or Board Ape Yacht Club is a popular NFT collection. Um, but what people may not be tracking on is there's so much more than just the image there. That can be your access to a community. It can unlock exclusive content um, and anything else that the creative mind comes up with. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, being someone who's just written myself and I'm a big fan of all things blockchain, I haven't really participated in the NFT, but I've invested in a lot of things, own a lot of coins, been around uh, blockchain since around 2017. But uh, the thing that I love to do on the show here is kind of go straight for the skeptic first, just to kind of get some things out of the way. And there are many people, especially with what's going on at the time of recording, when uh, just in general the uh, cryptocurrency world has gone it went up, and now it's a little bit back down, and, uh, you know, who knows if it'll be there a little while, actually predicting it will probably kind of stick around for a little while before it starts its upward trend, but don't, no one invest based on anything that Tim says. Please do not do that. But, but, but a lot of people are critical of this space for, probably for valid reasons. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but... But if someone is listening in and they're going, oh, great, they're going to talk NFTs, this stuff's smoke and mirrors, it's just a bunch of whatever, um, what's your response? Now, I think your quick response would be there are too many people interested to address those people. But for people that are skeptical, like, you know, I don't know, your grandmother or your parents or people that you're trying to explain to them what you're doing, what do you tell people? A couple of things. I mean, one, if you think of NFTs as part of Web 3.0, then then we can look at Web 2.0, the Internet. And what did that look like in the 90s? What did that look like in the 2001 tech crash? Like for anybody that's old enough to remember back when there was dial up Internet and stuff, that was where I grew up. There was a ton of skepticism of is this Internet thing going to just be a fad? Um, but as we know that that played out where it ended up revolutionizing pretty much every industry and every aspect of society is now as a digital presence. Now you have platforms like Facebook and so forth where you have an identity online and can connect and communicate with others and all, all sorts of things. Um, but that didn't happen overnight. So now if you fast forward to Web 3.0, you've got NFTs, you've got cryptocurrencies, you've got the ability to have a private wallet like MetaMask where you custody your own funds. And so there's a lot of implications here, and it's just starting to play out, in my opinion. Um, so I'd need to hear what is it that people are skeptical about to speak to that. But I think there's a lot of, you know, there's what one category of Luddites, right, that just, oh, a new newfangled technology, I'm not going to mess with that. But then you've got more savvy people that are like, okay, well, most NFT collections don't retain their value over time. That is true. Like there's a lot of projects that come out. Maybe they have a little hype or a little traction at the beginning, and then people either lose interest or the creative team moves on to something else or doesn't support it, doesn't nurture a community. There's all sorts of reasons why um, these projects can fail or that they can do well at the beginning and then drop off a cliff. And I'll be the first to say that absolutely happens. <laughs> Um, 
uh, just like in almost any other content-based industry. Like if I've got a background in music, I'm in book publishing, I've been involved in other media spaces, there's usually like one out of 10 projects does really well, two to three, maybe break even or make a small profit, and then five, six, or seven out of 10 just fail or lose money. And so that's nothing new when it comes to a creative space. That's true in movies, books, music, um, you name it. That kind of ratio is to be expected. So with something new like NFTs, it's, in my opinion, unrealistic to think anything with NFT in it is going to do great. That's not the right way to approach this. Um, so we could get into, you know, what are some of the things that make for a successful or potentially successful NFT collection or um, or what to look for, you know, as an investor or a creator that's looking at either purchasing or creating and releasing their own NFTs. What I can say is to, to anybody that's skeptical, just like I said with the market value size, this is an exploding space. Um, even now in a bear market, cryptocurrency bear market as we're recording this, like this is the time when people build and develop new projects. And then when the market turns, then you've got a new set of success stories. So I like to say build in the bear and, you know, ride it in the bull. Um, and one other point, like Amazon founder Jeff Bezos um, was quoted as saying, I think in 1996, he's like, I looked around and I said, if I'm going to start a business, I want to do it in an industry that's in the midst of explosive growth. And so he said, I looked at the Internet and I saw Internet adoption in households was growing 2,300 percent year over year, 23x. And so he said, well, I thought it would be smart to start a business selling books where most everybody at some point in time buys a book or multiple books. So he started Amazon as a bookseller, as some people may remember to capitalize on an industry growing 2,300% year over year. And of course, now one of the world's richest people, um, that worked out spectacularly well. But those are his words as to why he started what he did, when he did. And there's an overlay to where we're at with Web 3.0 technology today, in my opinion. Yeah, the thing that I, I like about what you're saying, and maybe it's even my deeper thought, I'm I'm... I'm excited about the de decentralization and just kind of busting up some of the um, entrenched uh, entrenched organizations or institutions that are out there. And my hope, I mean, I'm even kind of hopeful that fiat currencies and things like that can somehow be uh, uh, corrected, might be the right word, so that, you know, we could kind of do business and all in different ways. Now, I'm going to try to marry together two things that I believe you have expertise in, and that is let's go to the publishing industry. You brought up you brought up Bezos, and we know that he disrupted that industry, and we also know that that just general publishing world has been. I don't even know if decentralized is the right word. I don't even know what to, I don't even know what to call it, but. Go back a little bit and tell me tell me your history. Let let us know what where did you come through into the publishing world? I think you mentioned eight or nine years or seven or eight years or something like that. So talk about that publishing side, and then maybe later we'll marry it back together with the NFTs that we do, that we started with. Yeah, certainly. So ten years ago in 2012, 
Um, I had a book. I wrote a book called Lifestyle Entrepreneur, and I worked with uh, ultimately two different publishers to bring that out. So um, the first was in Southeast Asia. I've got a business history in China and Hong Kong dating back 11, 12 years, uh, maybe even a little more. And so when I was working on the book, I connected with a publisher out of um, out of that region, and we signed a publishing deal with me as an author. So I was super excited at the time. I thought, this is amazing. I've got a partner that's going to help bring this book out. And, and the book itself was on traveling the world and doing what you love and being able to run your business from anywhere in the world, which I understand is exactly what you're doing, right? Yep. And so... <laughs> Maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't as mainstream or accessible as it is now, but it's something I've always been interested in. I went through this process as an author. I did not self-publish. I worked with two different publishers, first in Asia, um, did a book tour, signed books, shook hands, kissed babies, and became number two business bestseller in that region, which was a, a great, fun accomplishment, and it paved the way to getting a U.S.-based publisher I updated the book, and that was released in 2014 in the U.S. and the rest of the world. Um, so through that process, I, I went from the inside out, like as an author, working with publishers, got to see the inside of the space and the industry. And, of course, being an entrepreneur, I put my entrepreneur hat on and said at different points in the process, man, if I was running this company, I'd do, I'd do it different. I'd do this, this, and this. That ended up being, you know, a prescient thought as after the book came out in the U.S., I had friends that were working on books. They'd ask my advice and give them um, tips and, and share my experience. They eventually started asking, can you just do it for me? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you know, everything besides the writing, the, the editing, design, marketing, distribution, all that. And wouldn't you know, I started to say yes. Um, and that was the genesis of Lifestyle Entrepreneur's press. So since 2014, we've been working with business owners and entrepreneurs, doctors and health and wellness experts, and people in self-help and spirituality genres with a full-service publishing offering. Um, so we've got an editorial team, a design team, a marketing team. We've got international distribution. Um, but I think our secret sauce, or what I've always tried to bring to this, is you know, we look at the author's business and their brand as well as their book. So I always like to say, like, where is your business going in the next one to two years? What offers do you want to bring out in addition to the book or focus on? And let's use the book as a positioning tool to help enroll the kind of clients that you want and have them come in super warm because they, hey, they just read 200 pages of your best ideas. Um, and then on the brand side, you know, I've gotten on over 50 podcasts just as an author alone. Your book becomes a great talking point to come on to shows like this and dive into what it is that, you know, we actually write about as authors. And so taking that focus of your business, your brand, with the book as the, the anchor or the centerpiece for elaborating into those, that's always been exciting to me. And I've enjoyed this work because – you know, authors tend to be interesting people, especially in nonfiction. This is people with 5, 10, 20 years of experience. And on a personal note, I get to understand more of their life and their success and then ultimately help bring out the, the edited version of all that in book form. Um, yeah. 
Yes, that's what I'd say is the, the origin story. So one thing that's fascinating about this, uh, and I, I enjoy this conversation because I see this in a lot of realms. I see it in podcast world. I see it in book world, and I'm sure it's in other places too. And that is this thought that someone, and you addressed it. I'm going to actually ask this question so you can address it a little bit more. They believe that if they get a book and pop it up on Amazon or someplace like that, that they're just going to start making money. And I think some people may, but to me that seems like a needle in a haystack. If it's not, you tell me. You may know the math and all that. But a lot of people do the same thing with podcasts. They think they're going to flip on the mic, start talking, and instantly they're going to be like making full-time money as a podcaster and leave their, their current gig. I've never considered writing and or even podcasting something that would be, to me, it's just part of my bigger projects that I work on. It sounds like that's what you really look for, but talk to that person in, in a nice way. I know you, we don't want to do it. We don't want to be mean, but that thinks that they're just going to make a boatload of money from writing a book and getting it up on Amazon. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I mean, my honest opinion is it's kind of a romantic illusion. Um, it's it's the same as thinking, hey, I'm gonna you know take a guitar lesson for for a month, uh, write my first song, and then become a superstar. And how often does that happen, right? And so you know, with with Amazon and with books and self publishing, it's it's lowered the bar for what's required to get your book out there meaning it's made it more accessible to more people. As a result, there's more books published every year than ever before. And just by the law of numbers, they can't all be good, and they're not all good. That's no offense to anyone in particular. But what it, what it means is it's democratized the ability to get your content out there, but that doesn't mean that everybody who goes the self-publishing route or writes their first book knows all the considerations or has the business savvy or has the marketing expertise or or any number of factors that can influence success. Um, so so that's one. And the other is um, books in general are a low price, low margin product. So, you know, when I look at publishing with distribution and getting books in print into stores, we're giving away sometimes 70% of the list price through wholesale discounts, distribution fees, um, retail fees, and that's before the print cost. So you know, I'm fond of saying if you sell thousands of books, you'll make thousands of dollars. And whether or not that's enough, um, that's up to everybody to decide. But when I say it's a romantic illusion, it's not like selling something with a $500 price point and and 50% net margins, whatever that product may be. You know, you only need to sell a few hundred of those $500 products with 50% net margins to make considerable amount more than selling thousands of books. And so, you know, just take that into account. It's it's. I think of it as it's a low price, low margin book or a product with a high relative value. And that's kind of the draw, at least for me, is, you know, a $20 book, you could learn decades of somebody's experience. You could you could cut your learning curve down by years for 20 bucks if it's the right book. I mean, just think of uh, everybody's got a favorite book they've read that's impacted them, like 
Think and Grow Rich was one for me, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a $15, $20 book. Um, but the distillation of years, if not decades of knowledge and experience. So I see this, if you can see this, you know, there's this skew between the price and margin versus the value. And just to connect that in with like our broader approach of the business and the brand, if somebody reads your book, maybe they only spent 20 bucks, maybe you made one or $2, but then they're like, that's who I want to work with. And then they sign up for a thousand dollar course or a three month coaching package at $2,000 a month, or they join a mastermind, or they come to a live event, or they purchase a training course. There's a lot of ways to monetize the interest people have in your book. I'm speaking more nonfiction now. Um, but that's where the win is. The win is in, it is in attracting your ideal client and customer and then having a, an escalation path where they can invest more and access more uh, in different formats than just the book itself. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I, as someone who's a coach, as someone who does this podcast and other things, everything to me just kind of fits underneath that umbrella. And uh, and I, I do think, and sometimes I get a little bit, I don't know, grieved when I can tell people are kind of hanging their hat on something really happening that the odds are pretty low. I, I love to play the odds. I'm an engineer. I love, you know, some math. You said you're out of, you're in Vegas right now is where you're located. It's like, let's play the math in our favor. And the math in your favor is putting a business plan together around what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, it sounds like you do that. What, give me just briefly what's your background kind of before you and i'm going to ask you a little bit about your travel too because that's always a great uh question for what we do here but but go back jesse and kind of how did you end up traveling and all of that did you grow up in a business environment or or what was your uh what was your setting growing up yeah um so for 10 years before i wrote my book i was i've been an entrepreneur in some shape or form basically my whole life i've feel very blessed that I've never actually had a job. Um, but as I say in my book, I may not be in the employment statistics, but that doesn't mean I haven't been working. So, you know, early on, I fell in love with music. Um, I played electric guitar, you know, from age 13, 14. That was it. I was not thinking of business. I was thinking, let's be in bands. Let's go play shows. Let's write music. Let's record. And I went to Los Angeles Music Academy at 18 started to learn um, more professionally. I've been playing in bands since high school. Um, but then I, I took a trip to Europe with some of my childhood friends at age 19, brought my backpacker guitar. I met an American who had been traveling Europe by himself for seven months, playing guitar on the streets, having the just wildest, craziest adventures, and and doing so for all, very low cost. And so it sparked a, a thought in my mind. I ended up skipping my ticket home, lived in Vienna, Austria with this guy. His name's Scott. For the better part of a year, we became a duo. And we'd go out and play in the bars and clubs. We'd play in the street in the middle of uh, Vienna's tourist district. And we were living in the student dorm. It was 170 euros a month, so very low cost. And we'd just make enough money to go travel. And so basically um, that was a little background on, like, on that phase, at that time, I went to, um, we recorded at a friend that was working at School of Audio Engineering Vienna, 
and started to get interested in the production side of music, like the other side of the glass. So when I was done having Euro Adventures, I, I moved to Nashville. I went to School of Audio Engineering there. And that was where I met my bandmate um, and my first business partner, Jake Harsh. And we moved into a place on Music Row. Um, we were producing and writing music 12 plus hours a day, like no exaggeration. Recorded over 100 songs with other artists and we're starting to play out with our own music. Took that to the point where we saw this kind of fork in the road. We could either pursue signing a record deal, which when I really looked into it, looked a lot like a job, like you're signing away creative control, you've got all these obligations, or we could take the road less traveled and start our own record label to kind of administer our own music career. So I kind of convinced him to, to go that route by saying, hey, I'll do all the business stuff. You don't have to get involved. And he eventually agreed. So at age 21, I started a record label, a restart a record label. Um, and then I was doing double duty. I was, you know, raising us money, talking, getting a group of uh, mentors and advisors, hiring a manager, booking agents, and writing songs, working on our performance chops, working on recording our music. Well, we took that forward for three years, and the result was we, re we released our own album. I got us a distribution deal through uh, Sony Music, had an independent subsidiary called Red. And so we released our album, toured the country twice um, in a van with a trailer, um, had our music on over 300 radio stations, nine songs on MTV, and played shows in over 12 states, which to me was like my childhood dream coming true, despite it being a ton of work, crazy amount of stress and pressure I put on myself, thinking, hey, all my friends are in college, but I'm here you know, eating at Denny's about to play a show and Flagstaff or something. I was like, we got to do it right. Like, we need to make this a success. Um, and by some measures, it was. Like, it wasn't a financial home run, but we got to do it. We got to really have that experience, and it was rewarding to, like, turn on the radio and hear our song. And so somewhere in that that journey, this thought was like, hey, there's no way I'm going to be doing this when I'm 40. And so that was like this existential moment of, well, if I'm not doing the only thing I ever wanted to do, what would I be doing? Um, and that thought kind of permeated for a little while, but eventually decided to wind down the band after our first album, um, did it responsibly, but very quickly. And that pivoted to becoming a consultant um, first for music industry people and companies, and then into other types of business development for tech companies and so forth. And I just, I felt, I fell in love with the creative side of business, Tim, in the sense that I used to think just writing and playing music was creative, but now I do believe that, um, that starting any kind of an entrepreneurial venture is a creative act. And so, I went from there from consulting. Uh, I had a stint as an investment banker with no college degree, co-founded a renewable energy credits business, search engine optimization company, ultimately a promotional products company that was drop shipping out of China to all over the world, sort of four hour work week style. And it was through those adventures that, you know, I was also traveling um, two, three, four months a year. And I kind of figured out, hey, if I've got my laptop and an internet connection, 
I could structure these ventures in a way where I didn't need to be anywhere in particular. This is 2007, 2008, nine. And uh, the promotional products business I had, I started it, grew it to just over half a million in revenue in the first year and sold it 18 months later. Not for crazy money again, like, but enough where I was like, okay, I should write down what I just did. Because I, I reasoned at the time, there'll, there'll never be a time where it's as fresh as it is right now in my mind. And that was the catalyst for when I started writing. When I started, it was much more of like a manual. It was like a how-to guide to start that type of business. And I'll credit my first publisher, uh, Kanyan Publications. Their editor said, hey, once we got to know each other, you got an interesting life. Like, why don't you make this more of a philosophy and business book instead of just a how-to manual that's all nuts and bolts? And I went for it. So that, it evolved from a just an e, a PDF, like an ebook, into Lifestyle Entrepreneur, the, the book that was ultimately released, where the first half of it is this philosophy, this approach of you know, getting clear on what you're interested in, passionate about, and finding a way to give it a business model and then structuring it in a way where you can run it remotely or wherever you are. Um, so that's a little of the backstory that led to writing a book and coming into this kind of second half of my adult career in life. And thinking back so, on it, it's funny because I am 40 now. So I've answered the question, if I wasn't doing music at age 23, what would I be doing when I'm 40? And here we are. <laughs> so you're 40 and you're okay, you're content and happy with yourself and all that. But there was a question that came to my mind as you were talking because I've had similar things too. Family members, friends, or something like that. When you're going along that journey that you that you just described, there's got to be somebody along the way that says something to the effect of, dude, man, when are you going to latch on to something and stick with it? Or when are you going to find what it is that Jesse was created to do? Or when are you going to like, this is a word I love. When are you going to stick with something? When are you going to get to something and, and stick with it? So when someone brings something like that up, what goes through your mind? Well, now I can say, you know, eight years into this business, I've, I've had some staying power. Like, in those, all those other ventures I mentioned, one to two years max, and then I was on to something else, um, sometimes doing two, two things at once. But my honest answer is I just never put much weight on that kind of a question. Like, I feel very blessed that my father is entrepreneurial. He's run a, a CPA practice. And so even at age 13, my first job, quote unquote, was sending out billing for his firm. And I just thought, wow, each one of these letters, like my dad helped this person do something and now he's getting paid for it. So uh, on the other hand, you know, my mom's a little more traditional and she would ask those questions, but still be supportive. I just never bought into it. I never believed that I have to just do one thing or that I even should. Um, and I think the answer to like, hey, what am I doing that I'm going to stick to has changed over time as well. Like. For each of those things I mentioned, I kind of ran them off like really quickly, but that was a one to two year period of focus where, yeah, I was doing that every day for for that period of time. And then it pivoted. Um, so I don't want to give the impression that I've just been like flippantly spending an hour or two here or there to do a business venture. Each one of those required an amount of focus, relationships, all the things that go into a business. But yeah, now... Ten years ago, wrote a book. Eight years ago, started a publishing company, and and we're still going. 
been plenty of ups and downs, plenty of oh crap moments. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have stuck to it and, and I plan to for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And the neat thing is part of life, this is my philosophy is part of life is not just finding what it is you're supposed to do and what you're created to do, but also going through some stuff to know that that's not what I want to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, you just have, and, and sometimes you just don't know until you experience it. And then I also think we pull things from different uh, things that we do that may not have been like our lifetime mission, but yet you probably learned something being an investment banker that helps you when it comes to raising some money or getting out and doing some funding and putting some financial pieces together. It sounds like you also have that with your family heritage, you know, with a CPA and everything. But uh, um, what is this is something that kind of struck me as you were walking through things also, Jesse. And I think this and is I'd kind of to speak to that. Yeah. OK, go ahead, because I, I could hold this thought. Keep going. Yeah, just on what you said of like. I think you really nailed it, Tim, where the way to find out what you are meant to do or what is that longer term thing that you're really going to lean into and and be involved in for a period of years. I think the best way to do that is to try anything and everything that catches your interest, because there's no way I'd be as sure as I've been about publishing if I hadn't tried five, ten other ventures and maybe 50 other ideas in some shape or form to arrive at the point of like, hey, this checks all the boxes. And I don't know how, how, how somebody could know that without dabbling and trying things to get that real experience instead of just uh, from the outside looking in saying, oh, I want to pick that industry, but that one doesn't look as interesting. Uh, so, so I've always just followed that. And, and I've, I've given that advice too, where like, especially when you're young, but at any age, um, go for it, right? Like, what do you have to lose? And maybe you do have something to lose, but you always have experience to gain knowledge and wisdom from having done it. And I've, I've pulled lessons forward from everything I've been involved in to what I'm doing now in some shape or form. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I have also, but there's two words that mess with people that I think prevent them from doing it. Number one is the word risk and two is the word money that you brought up. And so I'm going to ask you, because I, I like to get into the mind. I mean, you obviously have an entrepreneur uh, gene. I mean, it, it's in there somewhere. I think everybody has it to some degree. Some people have it to the nth degree. Some people have eh, maybe just, you know, little, little, little tiny bit. But talk to me. I, want, I think I want to hit the money piece first. I did not hear when you were walking through your background and and there may have been some. I don't think you're anti-money, but I didn't hear you saying, you know what? I was just looking to build something so that I could then exit, make a bunch of money, and then just go sit on a yacht somewhere. Where does money factor into the way Jesse thinks, operates, and you know does his business? That's a great question. I mean, my, my honest opinion is that money is a a lagging indicator. Money is the result of doing something well that provides value to, to the market or to a customer or to a client. And the result of that is money or financial compensation. And so I don't think of money as a goal in and of itself. And, um, and I think the love of money is actually 
maybe not the root of all evil, but it's the root of a lot of suffering because chasing money just for money's sake, even if you win that game, then you, then you got to think of what's next. Like, okay, if I made a million dollars early in life, but I still don't have diverse experiences or travels or um, profound relationships, then I just have a lot of money and maybe those insecurities or, or that other sense of lack. So for, for whatever reason, I've always prioritized experiences, travel, relationships, um, even if there's very little money on the table. Um, so I guess with that, like, you know, you said the entrepreneurial gene, I think of it as risk tolerant. Like I'm willing to put myself out there. I'm willing to step into a new identity and role and possibly get blindsided, possibly get embarrassed, possibly lose a lot of money. Um, but, but I think it's still valuable if I'm pursuing something for the right reasons. So that being said, like, in all honesty, I haven't had any crazy home runs. Like, I'm not a multimillionaire, but one way or another, I've gotten, I've gotten by. I'm alive. Um, and, and at age 40, having never had a job, that itself kind of feels like an accomplishment or a testimony to what's possible. Um, and, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd leave it there, but see if you have, like, a further question on that. Yeah, the follow-up is is kind of interesting because I know you interact with people that come to you and you help them, you know, bring a book to life. And I, I think most of those people would be business people, but how – I've noticed this with myself recently. How does one who has a higher risk tolerance – you're not as concerned about the dollar bill. And I'm not saying we are not concerned about it at all. It's just not the leading indicator like you mentioned. But um, but how do you interact with people that, let's just say they they don't think that way. They're looking for the work an hour, get paid for an hour, or, uh, you know, what's the lowest risk and I'm sure they come to you, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to disparage anyone, but how do people that think like you, and I know some others that are listening in, how do we be patient in working with other people that all hurt that way? Yeah, it's a, that's a very fair point. Um, like, for example, some of our doctor authors, they, mm. whether or not they pursued becoming a doctor to make a lot of money or familial pressure, or because they really just want to help people and they ended up becoming really good at their area of expertise and then make a lot of money. But that's, that's like a hard, there's a lot of hard work to become a doctor, right? You got to make sacrifice. You have to take on debt or pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go through med school. So if, if I'm working with a doctor author, like, and I have worked with quite a few, some of them make a considerable amount of money, but they look at the book as, as a pivot into um, a different stage in their career and life where now they're, they're say, stepping out from behind the operating table and onto the stage or onto media. And, um, and that's, that's a really fascinating part of like writing a book in general is, and, and I experienced this as well, like to, to shift your identity to a, at least a semi-public figure. Um, in many of the ventures I did in my 20s, I wasn't like the face and the voice of them. There's one or two where I wasn't even on the website. 
So to be a behind-the-scenes operator is one type of an entrepreneur, and then to be a, a semi-public figure at least where you're on media, you're speaking on stages, or you're putting your, your voice and your ideas out there, um, that's certainly what I help people with. And, you know, the money component of it is why well, I certainly tell doctors, like, don't expect to make a doctor's salary as an author, at least not right out of the gate. So then there's a balance of like, okay, if they're passionate about doing the book or eventually becoming like a trainer or having a business model around their IP, their intellectual property and their experience, then, then, then do a balance. Like don't just quit the hospital job and go all in as an author, work the process until the book's done and starts getting out there and you start getting traction and you start getting opportunities that can replace or exceed that income. So just from a financial perspective, like I think it's bad advice to just say, go all in, like quit everything and go a hundred percent in because if it doesn't work out, then you're in a really tough place. And, and it's embarrassing to have to go back and say, Hey, it didn't work out. And yeah, you'll get those voice in your head of everybody saying, I told you so. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you just, do this hard shift or this hard pivot. So I view writing a book, publishing a book, becoming a well-known author as a process. And as you work the process, you get more opportunities. More opportunities means more ways to make money in a new creative way than perhaps you were before. And that's how I see the relationship with like, certainly with book publishing and, and finance. Yeah. And, and I, I love, I want to start tying some of these pieces together one of the things that's fascinating to me is that you've been in and you've been in them. It's not like you've just observed them. You've been in the music industry. You've been in the writing industry. You've been in industries that a lot of people go in that have a creative nature, but they may not have, and I'm trying to be nice here. They may not have the business nature, but they're good creators, super talented. And, but you've been in at least two of those. You know, some people have rarely been in any of them. And now what you're doing, I'm going to tie this back to what we started our conversation with, is you're bringing it into a new space, new technology, new tools that can potentially help that, uh, we'll call it profitability or the ability to, uh, you know, bring in some financial resources. Let's bring it together. Why is, and, and let's just talk about it from this standpoint. Why are NFTs so valuable to the artists out there? Like, uh, let's say photographers, visual artists, uh, musicians, you know, people that do that. And also then people that are writing. What, why is there value there with what, uh, what's happening with the NFT space? Yeah, so for sure. So one is I see NFTs as another form of publishing. We're publishing an asset to the blockchain instead of the bookstore. And and it lives in its own digital realm. Um, one of the things I mentioned earlier, the, the fact that royalties are built in to NFTs is, is groundbreaking, in my opinion, um, because when a transaction occurs, the money split takes place. So there is no accounting period. There is no chicanery with a record label or a publishing company doing funky accounting. And then the, the creator um, doesn't end up seeing their share or whatnot. 
and and it's all visible and transparent on the blockchain as well each each and every transaction from the origin of that nft and so the other aspect is use music as an example there's a, a las vegas electronic music artist named blau he released an album as an nft but not just hey here's my album and it's an nft there's different kinds of nfts that gave you different bonuses um, so the most expensive one which I think he sold for like $200,000 or maybe more, was if you buy this unique one-of-one one NFT, yes, you get the album, yes, you get some bonuses, but then you get to co-produce a song with an award-winning artist. And so that just simply doesn't exist. 10, 15 years ago, if you went to Tower Records and bought a CD, you got the CD and whatever's in the liner notes. But now you could buy an album or buy a creative work and then even collaborate with the creator. And that's totally at the discretion of the creator. He, he chose to offer that as a bonus. I think there was others of like um, unreleased tracks or behind the scenes content or like um, front row seats to his concert or, or stand on the side of the stage while he performs. So you can just use your, use your creativity to think what other experience or what interaction would your fans or potential fans want, and simply you can offer that as part of the NFT sale. Um, so that's one component. And then just going back to those royalties again, like the, the most beautiful sounding thing in my mind is publish or release a bunch of NFT collections, have a reason for people to buy and sell them, and that's now a, a, a passive income stream that doesn't necessarily require any additional creativity. Um, it just literally shows up in your wallet. And so now if we look at books, right, like we've run many crowdfunding campaigns or many book launches where we'll say something to the effect of, hey, if you pre-order 10 copies of my book, you're going to get my training course valued at um, $497. And if you buy 25 copies of my book, uh, I'll get on a one-to-one -one call and we'll do, you know, a deep dive coaching session. Now, Web 2.0, that was the way that we'd sell a bunch of books and the author would feature their other offerings. Now you could simply have that be included as an NFT and just set the price point higher than a book. So you could have an NFT that now buy my, my book NFT for $100 and it's going to unlock my training course. Um, or buy this other NFT for $1,000 and I'll do a month of one-on-one -on -one coaching with you or any variation. Join my mastermind. Come to my next event or retreat. Um, get enrolled in my certification program. Whatever, whatever. Partner with me on a joint venture project. Mm -hmm. So I love, I love the idea of NFTs and they're still in their infancy with this regard, but being able to take whatever those business offerings are or whatever those um, additional forms of value that, that you have and just package it all up into one price point and, and being able to transact that on the blockchain. Some people would, I guess an argument that I heard, I'm trying to think if it was on an interview we did with Jimmy Song, who is uh, what I would call a Bitcoin maximalist. He's like Bitcoin and then the rest of these tokens and all he doesn't agree with. I'm actually invested in quite a few. So I was like going, huh. But his comment was a lot of the things that people are doing with NFTs, 
they're available <laughs> with Web 2.0. I mean, they're available with websites. But the thing I like, so I'm kind of I'm I'm bringing this up as a little bit of a rebuttal, but I'm kind of giving you a little bit of a softball here. I like removing uh, gateway <laughs> situations, and my perception is that the NFTs can possibly do that. In other words, there's not like a record producer, like a production company, or a or a publisher for the books, or things like that. A- am I thinking correctly about that? And is there any other feedback that you want to give with my uh, comment there related to, you know, why do we need NFTs to do this? We could just, you know, the internet's fine for a lot of this stuff we're talking about. Sure. Well, it's worth pointing out NFTs exist on the internet, but yeah. um, but with that. Yeah, you make a great point that like with that artist Blau, previously he has a record deal. He's got um, a whole team of people in a company that was working with him to release his music. But with this, there is none. He he created the album. He did that by himself. He maybe hired someone to help create the, the website to feature the NFT collection. But there's no middleman. There's no intermediary. There is no third party or there doesn't have to be with NFTs in the blockchain. So let's just say I, I release my book as an NFT and you bought it. There's nobody in between that transaction. You sign the transaction with your wallet, with your MetaMask, the funds transfer to me and instantly and automatically the NFT transfers to you. Um, so when you wrap your head around that, it it's even better than self-publishing. Because say you self-publish a book on Amazon, you're uploading your files to Amazon, Amazon selling it, they're taking their cut, and then 60 days later, you get your payment net of everything. Amazon is the middle party in that transaction between the author and the customer, the book reader. On the other hand, if I released my book as a limited series NFT collection, then let's say there's 100 of them, 100 people could buy it, now it's sold out. Now the only way for 101 to get it is to buy it from one of the 100 that do have it. And so if there's demand in excess of the supply of NFTs, that's how you'll see, if you look at this space, some of these NFT collections have an increasing floor price, meaning the lowest any NFT in that collection sold for is the floor price. So if you get that floor price above the initial sale price, perhaps by a multiple, that's where some people are making tons of money in this space, but it's also a key to thinking about how to structure your NFT offering. And the spoiler alert is create a smaller number than the amount of demand that you believe exists. And then you can start to create those secondary royalties as more people on them than we're able to get them at the launch. Hmm. Yeah, I love what you said was interesting about Amazon because I've actually thought of this. I don't I didn't write anything controversial or anything. However, I am would be considered in the Christian inspiration fiction category and you know, they're not shutting down Christians currently, but historically there there have been situations where that's occurred. But even look at other topics. I mean, if something is controversial, there is a push to have it removed from Amazon. I mean, you know, recently with the pandemic, if someone wrote a book that was kind of anti-whatever, you know, through the pandemic, there was a lot of push that Amazon should remove that book. And, 
you know, thankfully, it, it appears as if Amazon has allowed pretty much anything. It's just a marketplace, uh, but that could change. I do have one thing I want to bring up, and then we're going to start wrapping up here, and I want to put it together. Yeah, go ahead. Quick point on that, Tim, is the other benefit, which we haven't talked about up until now, is NFTs are essentially censorship proof. Like yeah. the NFT, sure, when you buy it, there's an image that represents it. But once you have it, an NFT is a key that unlocks content. And only the person who holds the NFT can access that content. So it is, in fact, a secure way to transmit whatever somebody might consider controversial, but also not make a big deal out of it, right? Like only the person that buys it gets access to the content. And if they sell it, they lose access to it. Yeah. So it, it becomes a secure way to transmit information, content, ideas without needing the approval or the um, or being subject to a media company or to a retailer that may have their own agenda or rules or preferences as to what gets sold on their platform. Yeah, and that's like putting that. it nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, we could go down a path here that could be a lot of fun, but we only have a couple minutes, so let's don't do that. One of the things I've thought of, this is kind of my last me asking your opinion if I'm thinking correctly. I just wrote a novel. It's in the inspirational novel category. However, I've got outlines and ideas for multi-novel and multi-story um, genres and different things like that. And one of the things that I thought of was using this NFT space to, this is my words, it's not a good way of wording it, but to sell off pieces of the story. Because I'm not tied to things like character names or even locations in a lot of situations. Um, there's some general themes that I will stay with, but I'm open to people participating in that. And uh, and being a part of that. And so am I thinking correctly that NFTs could be a way that I literally could? I hate to use the word crowdsource because it gets a little confusing, but literally I could allow people to participate in the creation of the storylines and also this, uh, um, you know, this world of story that I'm creating. Yes. And, it, you know, we talked about nonfiction and your business offerings, but on the fiction side, this is the opportunity, in my view, is you could have, you even before the book's written, you could launch an NFT collection or a number of them with variations. You could say, hey, there's five NFTs and each of the people that buy this get to name the character. Um, or you could have, here, there's 10 and, and and each person that buys this gets to choose a plot twist or choose a scenario or or something that will happen in the story. And then you say, I agree to write that into the book. Um, and you could get as creative as, as your creativity allows here in terms of bringing people in even before the book's written so that they're participating in some way. And I think that's extra valuable because then these other people have like a vested interest or they have you know, we're all more intrigued in something if we took any part in creating it, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like it's like bringing your fans in closer to the fold to take this approach and do a collaboratively created book that could be entirely decided by fans or partially decided, right? If it's a series or something, you could say, okay, there's going to be the same general thrust, but you can pick 
these different variations. You can choose a plot twist and adapt or a character name. Heck, you could put yourself in my book and I'll write a little section where then I ran into Jesse on the street and he told me all about NFTs and book publishing, right? And now when the book comes out, I get to say, look, I was in that book. Uh, and I'm just running ideas off the cuff here. But but I think there's a huge opportunity for, for forward-thinking fiction authors that want to involve their fans in that way. And it could go any number of directions. You could even give them a percent of the proceeds from the book or from associated products or merchandise and stuff and, and get into that whole revenue sharing side, which is even additional to the creative side we were talking about. Yeah, I love the thought of that. One one quick item I want to ask, does someone have to have fans? Because there's probably someone sitting there. I even think about it. I see celebrities do things in this space, and I'm going, eh, they're just celebrities. Of course, they already have whatever. Um, do you have to have fans? Can you build a, a platform from zero with this type of uh, structure? Yeah, I mean, we all have to start somewhere, right? Um, there was a time when I... Had my, I made my first book sale when I had the first 10 people on my email list. Um, and so that's going to be true of anybody that's, that's getting into a creative space. Certainly it helps to have fans. I mean, that's going to make it easier. But just like publishing a book, like we talked about going from a doctor in the operating room to standing on a stage at a medical conference and the book got him there, um, that person didn't have fans in the operating room but started to build them as they wrote the book, brought it out, started to become a semi-public figure. So there's always these two roads of you can use a creative venture to build a fan base and build an audience through that process, just as you can leverage your already existing audience to roll out something new and next and grow your audience even more in that process. So they're both valid. And for anybody listening or watching, right, we all start Summer. So don't let that be the, the limiting factor if you don't currently have an audience or a fan base in whatever pursuit you're looking at. So, so you and your company, and I think you mentioned your co-founder of it's Power Fan, not uh, there's another something with fan that we don't want to mention that, um, <laughs> but you pull a lot of this together. What would you want someone to do? After listening in on this conversation, Jesse, I mean, what would, you know, someone's kind of intrigued They're they're still getting their head around NFTs. Maybe they're interested in writing a book. I don't know. They're, they're just, they've got a lot going through their head right now. What would you want them to do as we start wrapping up here uh, next after hearing all this conversation that you've had, that we've get, that we've had? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, if, if you're interested in the book publishing side or exploring what that could look like, please go to lifestyleentrepreneurspress.com. And maybe we can link that up. You can find all about our publishing work there and you can submit your book idea. There's a, a submission form there. We'll review that. We'll get in touch. And if we think it's a good fit, we can explore it uh, on the NFT side, but also for authors is go to powerfan.io and we can link that up too. You can create a PowerFan account. You can start to upload your content. You can put a price on it, priced in crypto and um, pursue creating an NFT collection um, and or reaching out through a forum on powerfan.io to explore what that could look like. So, so multiple places to go. 
can someone, if they're a little bit fuzzy and they're just like, eh, I need a little bit more info, can they reach out to you? Where, where would you want people to go if they wanted to just say, hey, Jesse, tell me a little bit more? Um, yeah, you can go to jessekrieger.com, J-E-S-S-E-K-R-I-E-G-E-R.com. That's kind of my umbrella site. You'll see information on publishing. You'll see information on PowerFan. There's a form to reach out um, or just reach out, jesse at jessekrieger.com. You know, as a final thought, Tim, I put my that email in the introduction and conclusion to my book 10 years ago, and it was one of the smartest things I ever did because just inviting people to reach out, it hasn't been an overwhelming volume of email, but people will reach out and say, hey, I read your book. I learned so much. Can we chat about an opportunity? I've probably done over a million dollars of business just from people reaching out and proposing something. So I've remained open to it, and uh, I'm pretty – available on social media and other stuff too. So come find me. Yeah. We'll include all those links in the notes and also people can find all of that. Jesse, we are, and I want to say what a fun conversation because there's so many different directions I wanted to go because y'all could actually stake things on power fan, but I wanted to kind of keep it to a certain level. People can check that out on their own, but we are seek, go create here, Jesse and I'm going to allow you to choose one of those words over the other two that resonates with you more than the other. Others, uh, which word are you going to choose? Seek, go, or create as we finish up? I'm going for create, Tim, because create, creation, that's at the heart of entrepreneurship. It's the heart of being an author. It's the heart of being a musician. The heart of being an entrepreneur is creating something new in the world, and that's been you know, a personal passion of mine now for 20-plus years. With just having the conversation, that does not surprise me. Thank you, Jesse, for the conversation. What a great time we've had. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. Take a screenshot or share it if you're watching this on YouTube or listening on your um, on your uh, podcast platform or on socials. Go ahead and share it. I know other people would enjoy listening to this and learning more about this space and all that Jesse's doing. And I know I enjoyed the conversation. Reminder, we have new episodes that drop every Monday. We have just completed a new website for SeekGoCreate.com at the time of recording this. I have extensive notes with outlines, with, with quotes that you can tweet. And one thing that's really cool on our new website is that you can go down through the outline and if there's a topic that you like, it's got a timestamp. You could click it and begin listening via the website at that location for that topic. So if there's something we've discussed, I think you should listen to the whole thing. However, you can go back and listen to portions of it just by clicking on that. So check it out at the website, seekgocreate.com. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.